Hello there, you lovely people, and welcome to Fuds on Film. Now, for those of you expecting our long-promised, well, perhaps threatened is a better word, look at the works of the great auteur Uwe Ball, Craig and Scott came to their senses, and we've decided to drop that for a while, and we're looking at some, you know, vaguely tolerable work instead, because we're not all mental. (laughs) (laughs) To wit, we're going to have a look at a selection of the films of one of favourite actors of all three members of Fudson Film, the great Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell's good, isn't he? Yay! Let's talk about Sam Rockwell. Yay! It's considerably better than... Let's talk about Uwe Ball. <laughs> Sam, Sam Rockwell's not Uwe Ball. Yay! A uh, quick introduction, so I guess for those not familiar with us, I'm Drew. Over there in the red corner is Scott. Hello. And in the blue corner, Otto von Schnitzelpusskraken Gescheitmeier. <laughs> <laughs> Otto for short. Hi. <laughs> so, a selection of films of Mr. Rockwell's from 1997 is the, the earliest one. Uh, I think maybe just quickly talk about when Sam Rockwell first came to our attention, though, perhaps. I think for me, probably Galaxy Quest, which was 1999. I don't remember seeing it before then. How about you, boys? Charlie's Angels, I think, whenever that was. 2001, is that the same way? Is that a bit, a bit later than that, perhaps? I know, I saw Galaxy Quest. Maybe maybe it was... Charlie's Angels 2000. Was Galaxy Quest before that? Galaxy Quest was 1999. Ah, Galaxy Quest it was then. Okay, and you, Scott? I'm just checking. <laughs> oh, the Green Mile. The Green Mile was the same year as Galaxy Quest, actually. So it'd be one of oh, those two films. But yes. Yeah. So likewise, it would be either Galaxy Quest or Green Mile, pro- whichever one stumbled out of the cinemas first. Yeah. And certainly, I think even in the relatively small roles he had in both of those, I think he made an impact right away. That oh, this guy's a bit good. Quite interesting. Uh, I've seen him rather a lot since. So I suppose that's why we do a podcast about him because we like him. This is good a place as any to start, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Largely off the back, of course, of our discussion last podcast about Sam Rockwell and Three Billboards. Well, it seemed, with him being a man of the moment, it seemed like it might be not to be a bad idea just to have a look at some of his films. I feel like he's always been a man of the moment, kind of, hasn't he? He's certainly always been around in a lot of films that I like, but he, he tends to be more of the kind of supporting role. And I think what was what we were talking about in Three Billboards was, of course, it's more close to a starring role, if nothing else. He's certainly the leading man in that, and it's... That's kind of what we've focused on here for the most part, is the films where he is given something more of a spotlight rather than just the uh, quirky supporting act like in Galaxy Quest, which he had excels at mm. and generally steals the show, but there tends to be a bit less to talk about in those ones other than he's really funny in most of them. Yes, I think of there's probably only one film here where he's not front and centre, mm. and really the person he's in that film with is always going to be in the limelight anyway because of the type of person that they are but yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, so we've got a, a decent selection of quite different films here what we're going to begin with is one of the first films i believe where we really came to critical attention and that is 1997's lawn dogs yes uh, so when we looked back on rockwell's career to come up with the list it seemed like it would be a good idea to review the film that brought him to the attention of many of the indie film and indeed hollywood types that would cast him in a variety of supporting roles over the next few decades even if this movie itself is fairly obscure uh, my rationale for saying that being limited entirely to me not having heard of it at all before <laughs> researching this podcast so last week then <laughs> yes uh, however, the capsule review of lower-class gardener coming to befriend lonely girl made it sound like quite the heartwarming, gentle opener for this episode. It is not. <laughs> That's a misleading idea. <laughs> yes. Uh, Rockwell does indeed play a lower-class, trailer-dwelling southern gardener tending to the lawns of a gated community, Camelot Gardens, to which the Stockard family have recently moved. Ten-year-old Devon Stockard, played by Misha Barton, seems perhaps to struggle making the friends her parents Morton and Claire, Christopher MacDonald and Kathleen Quinlan, uh, so desperately want her to make. But, to be honest, it seems that Devon is content enough with her vivid imagination. One day, while venturing outside of Camelot Gardens selling Girl Scout cookies, she comes across Trent Burns, Rockwell's, trailer, and begins to inflict a friendship upon him, <laughs> Trent initially resisting before being won over by her. Trent instructs Devon to keep this friendship a secret, lest he be accused of Woody Allen her. Meanwhile, the rest of the Camelot Gardens has their own go- things going on, 
Hooting frat boy Brett, played by David Barry Gray, is having an affair with Devon's mother, and his mate Sean, Eric Mibus, is making goo-goo eyes at Trent from firmly inside the closet. An initial class-based mistrust blossoms into real problems between Brett and Trent, due to some daft wee kid's prank, and, well, before much time has passed, in interest of avoiding too many spoilers, let's just say things spiral out of control through a series of misunderstandings, and everyone will wish they'd had made some basic handgun safety advice. It's an oddly toned film, to say the least, uh, with the relationship between Devon and Trent having a completely innocent, fairy tale like quality, outside perhaps of the final ten minutes, where everything outside of that narrative aspect is ghastly. An immaculately facaded, white picket fenced 60s Americana thinly layered over the darkness, but there's some real obvious nastiness bubbling away from the very start that eventually takes over the entire plot in a way that, well, didn't seem all that natural to me, but it's undeniably obvious which way this film is flowing. Rockwell does well with a role that could quite easily have headed too far into stereotype and brings enough nuance and charm to hang the film on, which is fortunate as, that aside, I'm not sure I like the Lawn Dogs all that much. Not to say I disliked it, but I struggled to get a handle on quite what it's trying to say. It's not just the character piece. It does seem to be trying to say something about society here, but its messaging's a little muddled. Is it about class? Friendship? Paranoia? Prejudice? All of that? None of it? Not sure. And other than the very obvious conclusions, prejudice? Bad. Friendship? Good. I'm not sure the film itself knows quite what it's reaching for. It's not enough to make the film a write-off, but it's enough to stop me unreservedly recommending it. And so, for Rockwell completionists only, I would say. Yes, uh, I... I didn't like this film. Again, I, not that I particularly disliked it, as similar to what you're saying, Scott, but the problem, I think that it probably is mostly about class. Mm. That seems the, the most overriding theme in there. But it's it's just not an enjoyable or pleasant watch. There is this, where it's heading, without the, perhaps the one shocking moment of what the child does, it's where it's heading is kind of obvious. I get the general idea of where it was going to go. There was an inevitability about that. Yeah. And but otherwise, it's just a film full of deeply obnoxious people. Yeah. You know, not Sam Rockwell's character or Misha Barton's character, but everybody else is. It's just a hideous, hideous person. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite difficult to to care about anything that happens unless what you want them to happen is for them all to die, which I would have been quite happy with, but. <laughs> I have other issues with the film too, though, in that you have this relationship between Trent and Devon, and it is, it's innocent, but it is inappropriate, because he's a grown man, she's a 10-year-old girl, hmm. and it is made quite clear that Trent isn't, he's no genius by any means, but he's not stupid, you know, he's worldly enough, he, he just realise that that's wrong, and so when you get to the point where, however innocent really isn't quite the right word, but certainly however non-threatening, um, non-malevolent or non-in-any-way bad the relationship is, when it comes to a point where a 10-year-old girl is asking a grown man to touch her chest, maybe don't do that? Just a thought. Yeah. <laughs> but given that so much hinges on that in the way the film plays out, that really bothered me because it didn't make any sense. And the second part that didn't make any sense too is that it's all just the final acts of the film the final moments of the film are set up by this girl who has just been demonstrated five minutes earlier being very precocious and very worldly for her age then apparently not being aware that her parents when she's talking about when they're asking did he touch you suddenly isn't aware of exactly in which way they mean yeah it, it didn't it, it's not consistent. The character's not consistent. And for that reason, the, it just rings hollow. It just feels like drama bomb at the end. It, well, I really... kind of figured she was doing that intentionally because of the dog incident. Was the dog thing. I, I yeah. did have that thought that possibly, but I don't know, it, just, it didn't feel quite like that at that moment. It's certainly but, an overreaction. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, that, that's possible. I'm, I am possibly slightly misreading that scene in that it was less an inconsistency of character and more that she knew that it would have a bad result for him. That's possible, certainly. Which, which is still inconsistent because she doesn't seem like the overly vengeful type. Yeah, she's not vindictive. <laughs> she was upset, clearly, but not to the point where that would happen. But yeah, I, I just didn't enjoy it. The main reason being that the characters are odious and yeah. 
and there's something there's something about the way it's shot that I didn't care for either. There's and there's something almost almost dreamlike about the way the scenes in Camelot Gardens are shot and it almost feels like there isn't a wide angle or fisheye lens, but it almost feels like there is. It's really hard to describe because I can I can picture it quite clearly in my head how it felt, but I, I'm afraid I'm struggling to explain in the way it felt like a, a film's dream sequence. But it just, I, don't, I just didn't get on with the way it was shot. I mean, it's interesting, even if whoever wrote the film has never actually heard of the story of Baba Yaga and doesn't understand the, the main points of that. But Sam Rockwell's really good in it, so I can see where uh, people were... He was brought to people's attention by this film. Yeah, you can see why he made a splash in this film and not just jumping into the river naked. Yeah. <laughs> Another early instance of uh, Rockwell nudity, which seems a bit of a running theme as well. Yes, there's rather a lot of that. He seems to be quite fond of his bum, I think, because he gets out a lot. <laughs> uh, he's proud of his, his arse, apparently. Uh, but yeah, it's so he's good in it. It's just not a good film. And I didn't, I didn't massively dislike it, but I didn't enjoy watching it. It wasn't a pleasant experience. I really can recommend this film to anybody. You said for Rockwell Completionist, and I just I think that's probably the only way that that would be be really yeah. worth watching because otherwise it's it's just not a very good film and it's not yeah. particularly interesting or compelling story. And the characters, other than Devon and Trent, aren't pleasant. So and there's any other number of films where we could prove that he's a good actor. So yes, you don't absolutely. really need to. Yeah, <laughs> I have I have nothing more to add to that. Um, I found it very difficult to to see past characters um as you say pretty much with the exception of the two of them yes Rock, rockwell a clear standout and probably the only reason to watch this yeah i guess we move on then uh, to something considerably different to a game show host who possibly was a cia hitman <laughs> <laughs> no he wasn't the, the way he tells it i think his name was frank ducks yeah <laughs> That's, That's weird, right. Scott. That, that was exactly... because we did it so recently, but that was exactly the name that came to my head watching, re-watching Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Like, the um, creator of a game show where you throw chalk in people's eyes and throw them out of a ring. Um, yeah. You'll be referring to Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Drew. That would be the one, Craig, yes, from yes. 2002. So, um, Chuck Barris, creator of some of TV's most recognisable entertainment formats, <laughs> you probably have to clear your throat when saying anything about Chuck Barris, um, he has been described as everything from a genius to the reason for society's steady moral decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle of that, but what no one has ever described Chuck Barris as, apart from Chuck <laughs> Barris himself, is the CIA hitman, a claim made in his memoir upon which this George Clooney's directorial debut is based. Uh, the fact that Barris himself admitted this was built as early as 1984, <laughs> ought not to get in the way of a decent yarn. And this is absolutely a film which might be described as a decent yarn. Uh, Sam Rockwell portrays Barris in this whistle-stop tour through his careers, in inverted commas, both honest and imagined, charting the highs and lows of his employment with broadcaster ABC as it interweaves with the alternate reality he imagined for himself. Uh, tellingly, the cast of Barris's imagination are at once portrayed as more interesting than those that surround him in his day-to-day life and the film deals largely with the effect this distraction from reality presumably had in the long term. Characters such as Drew Barrymore's Penny, fictionalised here as a gestalt analogue for Barris's various wives, I say various wives, two wives, are problematic in that they somewhat undermine the juxtaposition of fact versus fiction, very much making both sides of that equation fiction. <laughs> but they do serve a useful contrast to the vivid inhabitants of his imagination. Inhabitants such as Rutger Hauer's Keller, an assassin who likes to pose for photographs with his victims mid-strangulation. <laughs> I recall being rather enamoured of Confessions upon its release, noting that it demonstrated a Clooney who was adept with offbeat humour and could clearly walk a line between artistry and popularity. But looking back now, I see less of that artistry, particularly surprising in that it represents probably one of Charlie Kaufman's lesser scripts, uh, and indeed I wish it spent a lot more time exploring why Barris became the man he did rather than paying lip service to some backstory around his upbringing with an oppressive mother. Uh, David O. Russell, reflecting on why he turned down directorial duties, perhaps summed it up best when he stated that the screenplay was, quote, not about anything but a guy who liked girls and say that he shot people in the head. Fortunately, Rockwell's performance is the one thing which has weathered the best over time. 
And the Barris we see here feels like the perfect fit for Rockwell. Uh, at once the entertainer and yet also the sociopath, riding a wave of massive success while at the same time marking the days as he seemingly wills himself to failure both professionally and personally. <laughs> uh, such a character is difficult to embellish with empathy and yet Rockwell does that thing that he does so well in making a cocktail of misery so accessible to a general audience. <laughs> Somehow imbuing Barris with a humanity that makes me want to hug him as much as punch him in the face. Uh, this is definitely Rockwell's show and if for no other reason than his turn here confessions remains a film worth checking out yeah uh, i found something quite similar to you craig i i remember seeing this in the cinema when it was released and being really quite enamored of it mm. and it feels i was going to say considerably lesser that's not accurate i still enjoyed it quite a bit rewatching it this last week certainly lesser than i remember it being mm. i think the problem is just that the the character's just a jackass <laughs> interesting but it's yes. hard to really get behind somebody who's yeah just wasn't particularly not evil by any means unless unless he actually was this killer which i'm going to guess probably not it's just yeah <laughs> i'm hedging my bets a bit there but uh, listen if for, if for nothing else it's just incredibly hard to empathize with someone who is an ass to the lovely lovely drew barrymore yeah <laughs> i uh, won't stand for it drew barrymore is i actually thought she's a wee bit underused in this film she is because she when she does has a a strong role she is very very capable of creating a very very warm character very easily Mm. Uh, i'm thinking about even though her role in it's small when she's in when she appears on screen in her directorial debut whip it yeah she's actually i mean instantly quite warm and she does Mm. that a lot I mean, it's, it's fluff, but actually I still quite enjoy the film. Like The Wedding Singer with uh, Adam Sandler, of all people, mm. um, and even Fifty First Dates, so another film she did with him. She's she's instantly engaging and warm, and she never really got the opportunity to do that in this film. There are hints of it, but not many. Yeah, I, f- I feel like she is still quite engaging in it, but she is definitely underused, and the overwhelming question I'm left with around her performance is, why would you come back to this guy? It's never really... The reasons why her character refuses to let go of Barris, where so many other people sort of gradually uh, flit away from him over time, mm-hmm. is never really properly explained. Yeah, it was not established. Yeah, mm. there certainly there are plenty of examples in all of human history of people loving someone and forgiving all sorts of sins, etc. Mm. But in a film, you've got you can't just take that on faith. You have to show it in some manner, and it never yeah. really does. Especially where the circumstances of their coming together here is just kind of so immediate and impulsive and almost throwaway. I don't feel like it builds a great deal of relationship. It just kind of assumes one as it goes. Yeah. Maybe she just really liked his bum. I mean, this film does appear to seem to have um, peak Rockwell <laughs> butt cheeks. Uh, <laughs> Crackwell. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so she, for me, is the one disappointment in that there's not more of her because she can be so warm and I think that the the film needs that for the balance of mm. but because he's i can odious is a bit of a strong word he's yeah. not but because not he's not by any means this evil person but he's never it's never really shown quite why people would like him yeah and that if, if you've given drew barrymore's character a bit more to do and, and a bit of an explanation for it, then it kind of gives you a bit more sympathy for sam rockwell's character mm. other than that though um it's still a fairly strong directorial debut for Clooney. It's There's certainly enough here to suggest that, yes, give this man more money and more projects to work on. Yes, absolutely. It's even... I'm not going to say the person's name, Craig, because I know you've suffered through the film enough, mm. don't you? I, 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 purpo- I purposely didn't mention it. <laughs> I know, but yes, it certainly has, has <laughs> that woman um, doing a passable job, I guess. I, I, I don't rate her, but I don't have the quite the antipathy towards her that you do. Uh, well, I'd completely forgotten she was in this, which is the only reason I chose, <laughs> I I chose haven't this watched, film. <laughs> see, I, I had never forgotten that. And to be honest, I was rather surprised when you uh, selected, of her six films, you selected the one that she was in. I was like, okay. <laughs> Let me tell you, Drew, at the point at which she popped up and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot I was instantly willing Dennis Quaid to, uh, to make an appearance. <laughs> <laughs> so that we both might suffer. <laughs> Someone share the burden of this misery. Oh dear. But yes, um, I'd, uh, overall I just, it's a far more slight film than I remember it being. Uh, basically yeah, what it boils yeah. down to is 
the secret life of Walter Shitty. <laughs> and it's Rockwell's super compelling in it, and it's still an, he's still enough of a reason, but by no means as turgid as Lawn Dogs. Um, but I, um, what was going to say? Oh, I can't remember. Sorry. Yes, again, I feel like this is a theme we'll be coming back to. This film hasn't necessarily aged fantastically well, but Sam Rockwell remains eminently watchable in it. And I wonder if a lot of the reverence that I felt for it at the time was due to the fact that we're probably still in a bit of a honeymoon period with Sam Rockwell, this guy who still felt like a bit of a discovery and who was doing something that nobody else was really doing in that mode at the time, um, and how engaging he is as a screen presence at this point. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, there's possibly something to that because like Charlie's Angels is kind of throwaway stuff, but I remember quite liking him in Charlie's Angels, Sally Galaxy Quest, and yeah. that was the same year as Welcome to Collinwood, and I remember mm. with George Clooney as well, and I remember yep. at the time really liking Welcome to Collinwood, so there may be something to that, that a honeymoon period or just that he's, yeah, because he's fairly new to us at the time and we were liking him a lot, and it's like, oh, more of him, great. Uh, yeah. And whereas in the interim, seen him in much better stuff. So I probably in, still enjoy it more than you guys. From what you're saying, um, I I guess because I never really held it in such reverence to begin with, in terms of it being anything other than just a shaggy dog story about this guy. I mean, I don't even I can't feel myself bringing myself you know, can't bring myself to hate the character because it's not really the character. This is some yeah. this isn't reality in any shape or form. It's just some weird diversion to watch for two hours and I think it does a really good job of being incredibly diverting for two hours and it's uh, yeah. Yeah, really funny I agree with pretty much everyone else you say Sam Rockwell of course great in it I th- I still think this is a, a really funny film throughout which you know, certainly kept me entertained when I was watching it again mm. I mean Clooney is a, still does quite well in the directorial I still thought this was quite uh, stylishly done for the most part and he has a pretty good supporting role in it as well so I still heartily enjoy it I'd still recommend it to anyone um, and also, because uh, I don't think I would have known who he was at the time, but I was quite amused to see a very, very young Michael Sarah turn up at yes. the beginning. <laughs> yeah, until I rewatched it there, I thought I was like, oh, wait a minute, isn't that? <laughs> oh, and a special shout out to now, I forget the actor's name, um, and I looked it up after I watched the film and I thought I must remember to give this guy a shout out, but the, the guy who plays the, the completely unhinged CIA instructor. Oh, uh, Robert John Burke? Yes. Um, actually, he Robert John Burke is almost worth watching this film for alone. The one who later, uh, yeah, after that, pretends he's from the IRS. That's the one. What's next? That will be Matchstick Men. Yes, um, the first film on our list with absolutely no uh, Sam Rockwell bottom that I can recall. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where you were going to go with that there. <laughs> like, wait a minute, he was in this film. No Sam Rockwell. <laughs> oh, just his arse. Okay. Ridley Scott's Matchstick Men, based on the novel of the same name by Eric Garcia, sees Nicolas Cage play Roy, a Los Angeles conman who makes his living by convincing poor saps that they have won a major award, even better than a um, a lamp, but that, that they will be liable for tax unless they buy a massively overpriced water filter from him. He is aided in this wholesome endeavour by his partner, protégé Frank, Sam Rockwell, who tires of this piecemeal work and nags Roy to work with him on his big con, a job that will net them both substantial sums. Roy resists this until his ordered life is upset by the arrival of his hitherto unknown daughter Angela, Alison Lohman, and deterioration of his mental health. And from which mental illnesses does Roy suffer? It's not entirely clear, but I think it's all of them. <laughs> he does seem to have been given a veritable smorgasbord of disorders, principally obsessive compulsive disorder, or at least the Hollywood version of same, as well as probably Tourette syndrome, bipolar disorder, and possibly light sensitivity that makes him malfunction. <laughs> I think that's called just being Nick Cage. Yes, pure Cage bot. <laughs> There's also a selection platter of other tics and phobias, and while so many problems for his character does allow Nick Cage to go gloriously full cage, 
it does seem to render it nigh on impossible for Roy to do the job that he does, <laughs> creating a massive difficulty spike for the suspension of disbelief from the earliest moments. <laughs> Matchstick Men is therefore very much one of those films that it pays not to think too much about. Now that's not advice that you'll hear from me very often, and it's certainly not something that I find easy to do myself. But if you can turn off that part of your brain, you know, the thinking part, then there's a lot to enjoy here, assuming you're on board the Nick Cage crazy train. And you should be, because the Nick Cage crazy train is a high-octane thrill ride that is often very enjoyable, even in spite of the bees. And certainly, <laughs> thanks for that. If you've not, if you're not, you don't want to talk about. Just type Nick Cage bees into YouTube and, and delight in the scene from the Wicker Man. <laughs> oh, and certainly much preferable to the. Why did he even bother? Is this even the real Nick Cage? Non-performance scene, in, for instance, Ghost Rider. But here we come to a problem. While normally I would have little compunction about talking about the details of the plot of a 15-year-old film, I am very reticent to do so in this case, as Matchstick Men, I am sorry to say, does not stand up well to the scrutiny of a repeat viewing. I enjoyed it very much indeed when I saw it in the cinema on its release, but knowing what transpires in the film makes watching it again a considerably more frustrating experience, though by no means devoid of enjoyment as the plot relies far, far too heavily on convenience, luck, and characters failing to do things that they might reasonably expect you to do. In that regard, it puts me very much in mind of David Fincher's The Game, though it's nothing like so egregious as that film. At least Matchstick Men doesn't completely fall apart on its first viewing. The other problem that Matchstick Men gives me is that, on a Sam Rockwell podcast, it's quite difficult to talk much about Sam Rockwell in this film. Mm. He's... Fine? I mean, it's by no means a bad performance, and he does get some of the film's funniest lines. But I'd argue that, of all the films we'll talk about today, this is the one which Rockwell has the least impact. It's the Nick Cage show, for sure. And it's... uh, And I'm on board with the Nick Cage show. (laughs) (laughs) We're all on board with the Nick Cage show, whether you like it or not. (laughs) And it's Alison Lohman in her role as Roy's daughter and in their engaging relationship who shines brightest amongst the rest of the cast. Ridley Scott's direction is passable. A few more stylized sequences attempt to convey Roy's neuroses and do so reasonably well, but it's hard to see Scott's mark much anywhere on it otherwise, unless he bears some responsibility for the unnecessary let's explain everything that happened frustration of the film's finale, or the sentimental coda. Though I suspect not as both, especially the latter scream test screening. In a film about con artists, someone is always going to be duped. And, done well, it's usually you. In the better ones, you won't even mind that. And in the best, you can return to the film again and again and appreciate the craft and cleverness of the plot. Sadly, Matchstick Men is not one of these. But if you can avoid knowing what happens, then it's definitely worth watching once. I guess I was aiding my rewatching this of not being able to remember a goddamn thing about it, <laughs> apart from <laughs> and the thing I did remember, Scott. which was that Sam Rockwell was in it quite a lot, wasn't actually true. So <laughs> yes, uh, I unfortunately <laughs> remembered all the details of the plot, and so when I was watching it again, I was like, I feel, "That's I stupid. Feel, that makes no sense. That's clearly that thing. That's obviously that. Why are you doing this? It was driving me crazy." <laughs> I feel, I feel like this film's ended up on our list for discussion tonight, primarily because we've all got bad memories now. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. What's this all? Well, it's more of a curse for you if you can remember Ghost Rider. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Really? I'm sure we've covered on this podcast several times that my excellent memory often is a curse, and I I don't care for it often. <laughs> for Matchstick Men, I I I guess I thought it was solid enough to warrant watching it for two hours, but I can't be too enthusiastic about it again. Perhaps one of the weaker ends. It's still, I think, reasonably enjoyable. Like you say, if you can avoid thinking about anything that happens just because Nick Cage is such a force of nature that <laughs> he, can, he can certainly drag you along by the scruff through this film but uh, he is he is so so very Nick Cage in this film Scott is he not? yes it's, it's maximum cage uh, but there's there's nothing wrong with that um, when you oh, get no, minimum cage not. it's much of a disappointment so yeah I, I still recommend it I suppose I still enjoyed it uh, it's out of place here as a, a Sam Rockwell joint he's 
perfectly good in it, but this is a this is a supporting role, a solid, dependable supporting role as he was known for. But he makes less of an impact in this uh, mm-hmm. than he has in you know other films like you mentioned, Welcome to Collinwood or Galaxy Quest or these other ones, where he has comparative amounts of screen time, perhaps, but does far more with them, uh, or is given far more to do in them. Perhaps is a better way of saying that. Um, yeah, it, it's fine. I remembered it being an awful lot better than it was on a rewatch from what little I did remember. Um, I remember liking this quite a lot at the time and not really having thought about it at all since then uh, until we kind of came up on discussion another week there and having watched it again, yeah, I feel it would have been better served just remembering that I liked it and not having <laughs> revisited it. I would probably have been happier all round. Uh, it's still fine. There's far worse films you could waste your time with um, if you want to see a couple of hours of Nick Cage going off the rails, it's worth a look in. Mm. But uh, yeah, it, it's yes, hard to be overly enthusiastic about you recommending You put it. this in your Nick Cage pile and not your Sam Rockwell pile. Yes. Mm. <laughs> That's the position I'm in, Scott. Um, I didn't have time to watch all of the movies we're discussing tonight, and I chose Lawn Dogs over this because I'd seen this at the cinema and I hadn't seen Lawn Dogs, so I thought better to, better to watch the film I haven't seen yet. Oh, yeah. well. <laughs> But yes, my recollection of this at the time was that I came out of the cinema thinking that was actually pretty good. I didn't necessarily expect that tone from Ridley Scott. And I also remember thinking to myself that Alison Lohman was some strange next form of human evolution uh, <laughs> upon whom you uh, it is impossible to pin an age. Uh, <laughs> because I think she was like mid-twenties when she filmed this or something. Yeah. And she's playing a character who's pretty much half her age. And I was hadn't seen her before. I was utterly convinced that she was about 12 or something in this. <laughs> yeah, it's quite believable that she's a different age there. Yeah, um, and I remember coming out and thinking, yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, not good enough that I want to buy it when it comes out in DVD, which was obviously at that stage, your initial reaction out of coming out of a film was, I can't wait to own this as a physical mm. object for some reason. Yeah, she's the uh, same age as us. She's like yeah, she's ages with us, so yeah. older than Scott, so... Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's bizarrely specific there, Drew. <laughs> 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 I don't know, just the date caught my eye. Ages <laughs> with us, I feel, was sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember to send her a card um, And I um, I remember very little else of it Other than Nick Cage going ooh, 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 Quite often in it And that's it uh, I didn't watch it again And there in my memory in a comfortable place it shall remain Best place for it Cool Care to tell us a little bit about Choke then? Oh is it back to me is it? Okay from the notes which I haven't finished typing yet but we'll get to that yeah choke Uh, if Fight Club counted down to a millennium that was surely going to mark some kind of profound cultural revolution where the common man would be the one to rise up and collapse skyscrapers uh, Chuck Palahniuk's later novel Choke acknowledges that the revolution might not actually happen until that common man gets over his tendency to be a hollow cynical and get his life in order here Rockwell works with director Clark Gregg to embody that novel's protagonist, Victor Mancini, an educational dropout who now works in character as a guide at a historical replica village. Victor has a number of issues that seem to arise from his uncertainty over who his real father might be. One of those issues is that he is a sex addict. Victor's mother, Ida, won't be helping any time soon as her dementia renders her unable to recognise her son, let alone reveal to him the secret of his origin story. Oh yes, and in the meantime, Ida is kept in comfortable care only by Victor's propensity to scam the saviours who rescue him when he purposely chokes himself in restaurants. A change of medical staff at his mother's care home puts Victor in touch, literally, with Dr Paige Marshall, who, while indulging Victor's baser instincts and thoroughly disrupting his four-step recovery programme, offers the revelation that her research shows Victor is actually the product of a programme to clone Jesus from (laughs) supposed (laughs) remains of, well, appropriately enough, giving the circumstances... Jesus' penis. Um, What Palahniuk is trying to say here is a little bit harder to discern than the message (laughs) of Fight Club, Uh, though the two do certainly share more common themes than you might first assume. Unlike Fight Club, however, uh, Choke the Movie has aged considerably in the sub-decade time frame since its release, certainly given the current climate that has made us uh, reanalyze the male objectification of women, and not at all aided by Michael Fassbender's harrowing and somewhat less carefree portrayal of crippling sex addiction just three years later in shame. (laughs) I mean, fortunately, again, Rockwell is on great form and worryingly convincing in the role of Vincent, and again, Sam Rockwell is probably reason enough to watch this film, Mm -hmm. Um, but as someone who greatly appreciated uh, Fight Club in both novel and movie form, um, I only got a few chapters into Choke. Uh, I f- for some reason, I, c- I can't think if perhaps 
the level at which I was engaged with Fight Club and the disparity between that and my initial reaction to the opening chapters of Choke was maybe just maybe too too great a level of dissonance. I certainly don't remember it being as humorous as this movie adaptation sets out to be, but um, yes, for whatever reason, I never did finish that book, um, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend the film, even if, uh, even if you had. But yes, anyway, I feel like we'll be saying the same sort of thing over and over tonight. Rockwell is strangely convincing and empathetic in, in the role of a completely irredeemable tosspot. Yes. Probably one for fans only. I don't know. I I enjoyed this thoroughly the first time I saw it. I enjoyed it thoroughly this time also. Certainly there are... I'm not going to say aged. and It's what you mentioned, Craig, but because it was never right to begin with, but certainly I am aware of it now in a way that I don't remember being aware of it then, and that was in the objectification of women, which means that 10 years ago me was a less good person, I guess. But the rest of it I still found thoroughly entertaining. I really um, liked it almost as much as I remember liking it then. See, I don't think Sam Rockwell is completely irredeemable in this film, or his character, I mean, not the, the acting, because, yes, while he's he is doing some rather unpleasant things and he could try and find money in another way, the money he's trying to get isn't for him. It is for his mother. So he's not, it's not just like a, a complete bad guy. No. One of the most compelling things about his character, and it could have gone the other way, is that he does take ownership of his shortcomings mm-hmm. and he doesn't really set out to deceive people emotionally beyond the sort of scam of his choke routine. He's actually quite open and honest with people about the situation he finds himself in with his sexual compulsions. Yeah, and uh... I'm, I'm a great fan of reminding people when they, especially in my line of work, when they tell me that I'm a straight shooter and I just tell it the way it is and sometimes people don't like that. I'm a great advocate for reminding people that taking ownership of being an asshole doesn't excuse being an asshole. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, to you. exactly. But, but, his character but some, somehow he gets away with it and, it and it does make his character somewhat more sympathetic. And he, he, he brings a... It's certainly given my limited understanding of the source material uh, and the opening few minutes of this film where it was set in a particular tone, he brought what I consider to be a surprising level of pathos and humanity and yeah. sympathy to, to a character who could otherwise have gone quite, quite the other way. Yeah, I'm glad you're saying that because that, I felt exactly the same. There's one moment in particular, this is... I thoroughly, I think it's really funny, um, and there are some interesting themes in there as well, and there are some touching moments. One of my favourite Sam Rockwell performances, and to be honest, I would recommend this film for like one five-second scene alone for the quality of his performance. There is a scene where he is visiting Angelica Houston in the hospital or the mm-hmm. care home, and she there's like various different lawyers and things that she knew. Um, that she thinks he is and she never recognises him as Victor but there's one moment where you um, wish Victor believes that she knows it's him yeah and there's just this look in his eye mm. he says nothing but there's just this look in Sam Rockwell's eye in that moment and it's like it's heartbreaking yeah you just see this in one instant he manages to portray longing that his mother remembers him, that the fact he isn't just a selfish jackass, that he he does care about other people, all just in this one this one moment to be look, this one expression in his face, and it's incredible. Really yeah. affecting. It was one of those moments that cut through, uh, even sort of removed from the material around it. Um, it was quite quite profound. As as someone who has recollections as a ten year old of living with a beloved grandparent um, who um, eventually succumbed to dementia uh, and Alzheimer's, I often look back at uh, the way stuff like this is treated on film, um, and it's it's something that's very difficult to enact as a performance from the person who's portraying the suffering of it. But crucially, the yeah the the way that that moment in which he as the person. <laughs> he's he's the person whose family member, close family member, is suffering from it. Does manage to absolutely cut through everything around it and get to something incredibly emotionally resonant in that. Those, like you say, it's only a few seconds of uh, of film. But yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out actually, because despite being quite affected by that when I watched it yesterday, I was uh, I'd almost completely forgotten about that scene. Yeah, it's a great turn from Angelica Houston, isn't it? 
Yeah, and I'm not often a f- I'm not often a fan of Angelica Houston. Yeah. I have to say, but this is definitely one of the. The more we're talking about it now, the more I'm thinking actually, yeah, maybe being a bit harsh on it, but it's still not a film I can imagine go back to. But it's yeah, the sum of its parts. Hmm. Yeah, um, maybe somewhere between you guys, I, I I remembered enjoying this a lot more than I did when I watched it this time round. But I think it's I was thrown so off kilter by. In particular recently, it's just the whole, you know, Me Too movement. And while there's nothing actually, it's never the case where uh, Rockwell's characters actually force themselves on anyone. There's never really no. any hint of impropriety, but there's just something about the attitude uh, or the the climate that we're in just now that makes this film seem a bit sleazy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which is a little unfair. I don't think it, it, it really is, but it just feels that way. It feels um, like it's a bit... Yes, you're right. There's no one thing I can put my finger on. It's not even that it's... It's not even... Like you say, there's there's nothing necessarily... It's not even that he's taken advantage of the people that he finds himself in these positions with because they're all mm. willing participants. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely something... And I wonder if that's what's taken the edge off it for me. I wonder if I'm just more acutely... It's maybe even overthinking it. I don't know. Yeah, it feels a bit sort of... Uh, Wrong. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's though it's like a... You know, there's a male gaze wish fulfillment sort of thing going on with it, which makes it a little bit, you know, gives me a bit of the shudders. Uh, but it is redeemed by a number of things, by Angelica Houston's performance, obviously Sam Rockwell's performance and their relationship. And I was actually quite into the whole um, digging up the past sort of story and the, the kind of flashbacks to a younger Rockwell and Houston mm. uh, there. I uh, wish this. There. I wish this level of analysis had been placed on... Chuck Barris's backstory with his mother <laughs> in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yes, um, as I say, somewhere between you guys, um, Clark Gregg himself as Lord Harry Charlie is a, <laughs> an amusing that's, little turn as well. That's, that's almost a that's almost a separate film on its own. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say that's an entirely different film, those scenes set around that historical reenactment village. <laughs> so, um, that, that historical reenactment place it's the strangest place. I think you see actual visitors to it. There's maybe two visitors any time you see it. And one of them is a woman that um, Sam Rockwell gets off with. But otherwise, they're, ha- they're doing all these things like making it, like they're keeping a character and having people put in stocks and having the constables come around with their firearms and punishing people. But there don't appear to be any members of the public there to see it. It's the strangest place. <laughs> it's, the, it's the world's weirdest HR department. <laughs> oh dear yes um yeah so say, i i enjoyed it uh I, I guess well enough not as much this time round as last time but uh, still well enough that i'd say it's well worth putting on anyone's uh, watch list i'll be interested to come back to this film in a few years time a couple of years time when presumably at the crest of our emotions and our awakening around the whole me too thing has subsided and i think might be able to view it better objectively then I feel like we're probably just too much. It sound like some sort of. I don't sound like the middle-aged white woke male. I feel like we're probably just too close to the epicenter of this stuff at the minute to be able to view this fairly objectively now. On my first viewing, does that make sense? Yeah. Or am I just realising it for, for a piece of <laughs> terrible, terrible shit that it is? Um, no, I think I probably want to come back to it in a couple of years and and see how I feel about it because there's enough there to suggest it's worth a second viewing. Yeah. Oh yeah, certainly. Um, I've seen it twice now and thoroughly enjoyed it both times, so one would hope so. Um, and also for those keeping score, yes, Sam Rockwell does get his bottom out in this film also. Indeed he does. <laughs> I'm think, beginning to think it's part of his contract. <laughs> um, and I noticed in the, the bizarre world of IMDb trivia that one of the things listed for Sam Rockwell's trademarks is muscular legs. I'm not sure how that's a trademark. That's let's like say, he does seem to like to display them because you don't first of all think of Arnie or Stallone or any of those guys. You go muscular legs, Rockwell. Yes, he's our guy. Classic Rockwell. Classic. That's it. <laughs> muscular legs. That's Rockwell. <laughs> oh dear, trademark muscular legs. What? Yep, that's IMDb for you. So speaking of which, I suppose it was. An obvious choice for casting when Moon came around. So that's a that's a that's a button. Oh, we'll uh, set them up and oh, knock them in. Oh dear Scott. Yes, uh, Moon. 
<laughs> in which, yes, <laughs> let's get it out of the way. Oh dear. Is it a full moon, Drew? Bums. The entertainment industry is a particular bastion of nepotism and there are plenty of musicians, writers, filmmakers and actors who have benefited from famous parentage or bankable name. Some never emerge from that shadow, some eventually make a name for themselves, and some are Frank Stallone. (laughs) (laughs) Who's Stallone? Yes, exactly. Yes. (laughs) And sometimes someone comes along who goes straight from, oh yeah, he's just that guy's kid, to... Jings, this guy's a bit good, ain't he? In their very first outing. One such person is Duncan Jones, who, prior to 2009, was known to most people, if he was known at all, as one of those unfortunates whose showbiz parents ought not to have been allowed to name their children because they did it stupidly. (laughs) But with his film debut moon, the former Zoe Bowie put all of that behind him and instantly created a name and reputation for himself. In the year 2035, much of the Earth's energy problems have been solved by the harvesting of lunar rocks rich in helium-3. In keeping with the film's hard sci-fi credentials, this has a basis in scientific fact. Large harvesters strip material from the moon's surface, which is then processed and shipped back to Earth by rocket for use in energy production there. It's mostly an automated process, but it does require human oversight for maintenance. Enter Sam Bell, Sam Rockwell. The solitary human on the lunar base, whose only company is the Kevin Spacey-voiced robot Gertie, and, increasingly, his own voice. Alone on the dark side of the moon, Sam's solitude is worsened by a chronic long-range communications issue, which means he only has infrequent, and not in real time, contact with his wife Tess and their infant daughter Eve. Approaching the end of his three-year contract, Sam begins to have hallucinations. One of these hallucinations causes him to crash his lunar rover into the back of one of the robot harvesters while he's collecting a helium-3 canister. He wakes up shortly thereafter in the base's infirmary, where Gertie informs him that he had an accident, though Sam is unable to remember any details of what happened. But, how did he get back to the base? And what is the conversation he overhears Gertie having with Lunar Industries Management about? Aren't long-range communications down? Is... In fact, everything as it seems. Well, no, obviously everything is most assuredly not <laughs> no, as it seems. everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. No, yeah, I was going to say, no movie to see here. Yes, everything is not as it seems. It's something Sam discovers when he recovers the body of himself from the crashed rover. Unlike Matchstick Men, I have no qualms about talking about Moon's reveal, not least because it's not really the point of the film, and also because it happens a good 30 minutes earlier in the sub-100 yeah, yeah. minute film than I had remembered. Yeah. Um, <laughs> coming pretty much at the end of the first act. Well, it also comes nine years earlier than now. <laughs> so <laughs> we don't need to be too precious about it. Sam is a clone. As is Sam. Of the original Sam. A series of short-lived disposable assets created for the purpose of this lighthouse keeper-like job 384,000 kilometres from the next nearest human. As he... They, I guess, discover more about himself, their selves, their location and their situation. We are prompted to consider themes of individuality, humanity, loneliness and more. Pretty much the only negatives to Moon are budgetary and even then they're fairly minimal. A bit more money and I imagine that Gertie would have moved less jerkily along its track. That sort of thing. It's really pretty remarkable how good looking a film Jones is able to reduce. Shot only 33 days and from a budget of only $5 million? It's remarkable, and sadly remarkable in the bad way that such a great film only grossed about $10 million. The film was a large, and clear, debt to the likes of Silent Running, Dark Star and 2001 Space Odyssey, amongst others, and many have criticised Moon for being too indebted to its forebears, though I am certainly not one of them. I love its 70s sci-fi aesthetic and practical model effects, and it's harking back to a time when big screen space films had a lot more to say than the lasers go pew pew and the ship goes bang. <laughs> it's interesting to note that Moon came out the same year as J.J. Abrams' action-heavy Star Trek reboot. 
while crucially being approximately 20 times more interesting than the snooze fest that particularly 2001 and Silent Running were. There's no shortage of things to praise in Moon, from the wonderful sets to the atmosphere, Clint Mansell's score and Jonesy's confident direction. But it's trump card as it's acting. Aside from videos of Tess, Dominique McElligot, and briefly Benedict Wong and Matt Berry of all people as executives, yeah. Moon consists of three key performances. Kevin Spacey's Gertie, whose ambiguous but not flat or robotic delivery leaves you uncertain for a long time whether or not it is indeed a malevolent HAL 9000 successor, or perhaps something else entirely. Secondly, Sam Rockwell is Sam. And thirdly, Sam, played by Sam Rockwell. (laughs) (laughs) Rockwell is excellent from the beginning, and he rises to the challenge in the largely single-handed first third extremely well. However, it's in the remainder of the film where he's acting literally against himself that he's truly impressive, Mm. displaying an incredible range of emotion as well as a strong physical performance. For me, Moon is still the highlight of Rockwell's career, and... It's very much the one film of his that I'd urge anyone interested in him to make sure that they see. He's off a good like. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> this is definitely a high point. Um, I haven't seen Sam Rockwell do better than this and in a set of circumstances where he's got perhaps the least amount to work with. He sh- he shines the most. I don't mean the least amount to work with in script terms, but in terms of this is literally a you know a one man show, um, or at least when it becomes a two hander, he is both hands, um, <laughs> which is which is. I mean, if acting against no one is a challenge, then acting against yourself, I can only imagine both you know an artistic and a technical nightmare. I would also point out that I. I haven't watched Warcraft, but I know, Scott, you reckoned it was all right, but I will say so much as I've gone back and watched Source Code Against recently, and man, did I not like that film second time round. So I'm quite happy saying this is comfortably Duncan Jones's best uh, film by a good mile. I'm surprised, just checking now, that the Metacritic score for Moon is only something like 67. And I know we don't put a great deal of faith in That's Metacritic nuts. scores, whatsoever, but that does feel like <laughs> particularly egregious oversight on a lot of people's part because from very first viewing, um, I was um, spectacularly enamoured with Moon and yeah. it's still one of those films that I feel I could go back and watch pretty much any time. And you mentioned, Drew, actually quite the juxtaposition it makes coming out in the same year as that J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot and in many ways an ideal double bill would be to watch Moon and then watch Moon again. <laughs> <laughs> because that Star Trek reboot <laughs> is definitely a J.J. Abrams film. Um, oh, I, I, I like that film a great deal, the Star Trek reboot. I, I thought yeah, it was a it's really, really good. good action film. It's not yes. a sci-fi film. Yeah, it's, it's disposable. It's utterly disposable, um, but about as good as something utterly disposable can be. But uh, Moon, is, Moon is something else, and I think for everyone involved... Certainly for Jones and Rockwell, because nobody else really, for the most part, is involved apart from Kevin Spacey's vocal cords. Uh, it's uh, it's definitely a highlight, and it's I think it's easily the best of the films that we've spoken about tonight by a country mile. Yes, I've really nothing to add. I'm in complete agreement. It's absolutely fantastic. It's the only film that we've spoken about here that I've watched more than once uh, beforehand, and was you know very happy to do so. Uh, I'll watch Moon as often as I <laughs> have opportunity and uh, time to do it. Yeah, really good film. Really great performances, but absolutely recommended, as you say. Rockwell's not been better yet. Rubber stamped. And what else did we have? Was that it? No. <laughs> Seven Psychopaths. Scott's going to tell us about the film where Tom Waits carries a rabbit around. What a phantom. <laughs> Bolt your rocket. <laughs> what a weapon. <laughs> right, Seven Psychopaths, uh, Colin Farrell's Marty Farron is struggling to write his latest screenplay, titled Seven Psychopaths. In fact, he's currently only got one of them, and he's more of a Buddhist than a psychopath. His (laughs) best friend, actor Billy Bickle, Sam Rockwell, gives him a constant stream of encouragement while slandering his girlfriend, suggesting that perhaps the real-life nutter going around killing mid-to-high-level members of the Italian-American organised crime syndicate, calling himself the Jack of Diamonds with a very little calling card, would be a suitable inclusion. When not hanging out with his friend, Billy's out borrowing, or rather kidnapping, dogs from their owners for a while, allowing Christopher Walken's Hans Kislowski to return them a few days later when a reward has been posted. The 
not entirely credible narrative of this film kicks into high gear where they when they target the dog of another real life nutter, gangster Charlie Costello, played by Woody Harrelson, who is very keen to find his dog and those who besmirched him. Now, there's a lot more going on in Seven Psychopaths, but recapping it soon sounds like a fever dream, so there's little point in telling you more than the basic setup. Written by Martin McDonough, recently of course making waves along with Rockwell in three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, there's a certain through line between these and in Bruges, although this moves out in a far more self-referential postmodern direction. Indeed, it shares at least some DNA with Spike Jones's adaptation, without pushing the boat out quite as far from the shore as that did, but there's similar ideas here. The author's self-insertion, the metaness of it all, and to be honest, it does a much worse job of it than Jones did a decade before. But thankfully, no one is here for a lesson in film structure. I hope. Uh, If you are, you'll be sorely disappointed, but I can cut it an awful lot of slack because it's so very, very funny. McDonough's exchanges are sharply written, and the cast, to a person, delivers them pitch perfectly. There's perhaps a bit of prior knowledge assumed with the action and buddy cop films of the 80s and 90s to appreciate some of the humour, but nothing that life won't already surely have inflicted upon you, unless you're too young to be watching this anyway. I recall enjoying this greatly at the time, and this first rewatch perhaps makes the structural tricks and postmodern leanings a touch more obvious and grating, but that's really heavily outweighed by how much I enjoyed the details of the dialogue exchanges and the excellent ensemble performance that Rockwell is a huge part of. I enjoyed this the most of all the films we've spoken about today. It's not the best, in absolute terms, nowhere near it, but it is really entertaining. I like it. Watch it. I can't speak because <clears throat> I didn't watch this. I'd completely forgotten about Seven Psychopaths. <laughs> Whoops. Well done. Um, <laughs> yes, I enjoyed it as much this time as I did the last time, as far as I can recall. I still think of Martin McDonough's three films I prefer in Bruges. Yes. But yes, this is uh, this is still deeply entertaining, and Sam Rockwell was great in it. I mean, it really should be Colin Farrell that's his star, but it's not. It's Sam Rockwell. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, even even despite his uh, character, he's still a bit too grounded compared to everything that's going on to really <laughs> so, fit in with the narrative. He's just the guy outside going, what? Colin Farrell does get some great lines that he delivers well, but yes, it's Sam Rockwell who showed this, although when you also have the great Christopher Walken, it's a really good performance from Christopher Walken, actually. Absolutely, yes. Um, and then uh, Woody Harrelson's great in it, and Tom Waits doesn't have as big a role as I remember, actually. It comes back again in the end credits, but mm. uh, still, something about Tom Waits wandering around with that rabbit <laughs> is really amusing. Yeah, it's a memorable turn. It's just, it's a really funny film, which is all you really need to know. It's, it's not the strongest narrative, but it's not really meant to be. It's it's something that the idea of somewhere between a fever dream and um, the creative process yeah. and <laughs> with a bit of writer's block flung in there. It's just, it's really funny. And that's all you need to know. Absolutely. Even the, all the vignettes that are put in, uh, they all kind of lead back to each other somehow. It's it's not quite as haphazard as I've perhaps made it sound out. I mean, you, you can see where the, the artistry was intended. I think some of the seams are a bit too obvious. Uh, if you're actually going to view it in a sort of structural kind of way. But yeah, just in terms of it being incredibly funny, it's just an incredibly sharply written piece of entertainment. Um, um, lots of, maybe even not necessarily one-liners that are great, it's just these little exchanges of like, like three or four lines or something that wind up being incredibly funny. And some really inventive uh, wording, which uh, really helps bring this to another level. Yeah, great. Yeah. It even manages to produce occasional moments of, I'm not quite sure how to say it, it's touching moments, certainly for me, this time around, when towards the end of the segment with the the Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find that really affecting. Yeah. When um, you, you realise that what, the, the way that it's suggested that that scene is rewritten. Yeah. And I actually found the end of that really affecting, which I don't remember feeling the last time. Yes. Uh, which, again, goes back to a great performance from uh, uh, Christopher Walken, which, in the narration of it, which really does help. And... Even after all that sort of, you know, touching, but it can't help but undercut it at the end with a couple of gags just slipped in there, which uh, works really well too. <laughs> Sounds great. I don't know, um, we're not going to go into depth on them, but there's um, sort of a handful of other uh, Sam Rockwell films that we flagged that are have something worth recommending one way or the other. It's quite, did, you have, did you watch Poltergeist, Scott? I know you'd been talking about it. Watched 10 minutes of it. Um, and was not interested enough to finish watching it. 
So, so enough then. Um, right, so we can skip that. But, um, of the ones that floated, uh, the only one I didn't watch Poltergeist, I was never going to. The other films um, on this list here, I was familiar with, apart from Snow Angels, I'm going to mention that first because it's, I don't think it's a particularly well known film at all. Snow Angels, based on a novel, is a kind of semi tragic, well, it is a tragedy really, of something horrible happening to child and the effects that it has on other people not a great film because it seems to be focused on a character who isn't really or shouldn't be the main focus of the film but Rockwell is dependably good in it the real surprise though is that Kate Beckinsale actually can act quite well given decent material and also not being directed by her husband Lena Wiseman that seems to be the key but if you're looking at Sam Rockwell's career, Snow Angels is not one to watch for him. It's actually one to watch for Kate Beckinsale, of all people. I'm really sure I have a point. Just that I, I watched a bunch of Sam Rockwell films in preparation for this as well. Yeah, I just like Sam Rockwell a lot, as we all do. That's why we're doing this. Uh, if you've not seen it, Galaxy Quest, it's probably the best Star Trek spoof there's ever been while still being quite clearly fond of the thing it's spoofing. The best spoofs are like that, and Sam Rockwell's great in it. Mm-hmm. The Way Way Back, from 2013. Again, Sam Rockwell's not the star of that. He should be. He's deeply, deeply engaging as the sort of mentor character to the the kid going sort of coming of age in that film. Yeah, a film I really liked. It's one of my films of the year that year, I think. Uh, it's the second time I've seen it, and I... I really, really enjoyed it. Steve Carell showing that he can just be a complete jackass. Um, <laughs> yeah. In a different way to say something like Foxcatcher, where psycho in that, I guess. But yes, Sam Rockwell is, once again, basically steals the show. He's a supporting character, but feels like the star of it. And yeah. what else is worth mentioning? I asked you about to see if you could remember how strong a character he was. He's in Frost Nixon. I think that's maybe one of the few times where he doesn't really steal the show even with a smaller role because that is Michael Sheen and Frank Langella's film as it ought to be. Yeah. But still he's doing, it's such a broad range, you can do all sorts of different things and he's as believable as this sort of halfway goofy guy running a water park to the slightly manic, half terrified for his life extra on a television sci-fi mm. show that ends finds himself in space and at the same time being a investigative reporter and um, author in a fairly hard-hitting look at um, a corrupt president you know yeah. so he's got a lot of range uh, the only sam rockwell film that i would really urge people not to see is the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy because that film's terrible and has Bill Nye in it, which is, you know, it should put you off anything. But I, this one time, even Sam Rockwell's performance couldn't really save a pretty dull film. Yeah, uh, but I, I might as well agree with that. I honestly can't really <laughs> remember much about that film at all. I know he's also in Cowboys and Aliens, so, you know, there's that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Maybe two I films. Looking, yeah. I actually think Cowboys and Aliens is unfairly maligned. I remember finding that reasonably enjoyable. <laughs> um, not brilliant, but reasonably enjoyable. There is. Uh, that's what I wanted to mention, actually. It's it's a fairly slight film, and it is it's fairly forgettable in most ways, but I actually, having seen it twice now, I have quite a lot of um, appreciation for Mr. Right. Film from 2015. I don't think it got a particularly big release. Uh, interesting, we were talking about it just a couple of podcasts ago, um, and I don't think I would have really clocked the name at the time, but written by Max Landis. It has very much a, a gross point blank sort of feel about it, about right. a hitman who's having doubts about being a hitman. But it is actually really quite funny. Good chemistry between Sam Rockwell and Anna Kendrick. Yeah, that's if you've not heard of that one, that's definitely one to check out. Kind of goes down the, the romantic comedy road um, and in terms of journeys of characters, exactly as you'd expect, but... The nature of the journey, perhaps not quite so much, and as they similar to in some ways to Gross Point Blank, so that's a recommended one as well. 
And oh yeah, I, I would not watch um, Don Verdine because it's terrible. That's all I remember about it now is that it's terrible, but it was terrible, so avoid it. <laughs> yeah, I'm so articulate tonight. <laughs> Why don't you want to watch this? Because it's terrible. Oh, okay, great. Fairly solid reason. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that'll wrap up our discussion. First, uh, I guess a few feedbacks from the Twitter. I'd uh, just like to say thank you to the people who responded when we asked for uh, what you guys' favourite Sam Rockwell films was as a kind of prompt as to what we should cover on this one. So that's thank yous going out to at Ninja Potato 10, Kung Fu Tati, uh, Attack on Movies, uh, at Attack on Movies underscore, uh, Mako Makita, at Mako Makita, uh, at Minute 5072, and Perpetual Dub Machine at Blake Wright. So thanks to all of you guys for chiming in. And uh, just on the films we've spoken about today, a couple of tweets in from Sonic Yoda at Sonic Yoda on the Twitters. He was a big fan of Seven Psychopaths. Uh, really enjoyed walking who puts in a stellar performance that he really didn't need to be doing at this point in his career. Really funny but tragic at the same time. And because he's not a monster, he likes Moon as well. I'm not super crazy about it like some people. Oh, he's a monster. Uh, but I think it does a lot with a little and Rockwell puts in a fantastically varied performance. Helps that the editing makes his conversations with himself that much more believable. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which I've just remembered. Um, I remember him being good in that also. Again, not the star, but he's one of those one of those films where he just seems to be have a bigger role than he actually does because he's so compelling. Yeah, I, I recall it being a dull film, though. But I never, never quite grabbed me that one as much as it did for many others. <laughs> I really just thought myself just listing Sam Rockwell films now because people have access to IMDb. It's not just <laughs> me, you know, they can do that themselves. But So if you do want to get in touch with us with any of the issues raised here or anything else, please do. You can do so on the Twitters. Uh, we're at Fuds on Film. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash fudsonfilm, or we are on the emails. If you remember those things, that's podcast at fudsonfilm.com. Um, I think that will wrap us up for today, so until next time, I've been Scott Morris, and Drew has been Drew. I have been. Yeah. I, I, and Craig was Otto von Schnitzelpers, Kraken Gescheitmeier. <laughs> yes. Bye!